forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah. Oh, we're doing it. We're doing it. We're here. I have Mallory O'Mara here. We're doing it. Mallory has written her first book uh, called The Lady from the Black Lagoon, Hollywood Monsters and the Lost Legacy of Millicent Patrick. It's out today. Um, Congratulations. Ah, (laughs) Crazy. Yeah. We were just talking. When you write something, it almost feels like you're pregnant. And when it finally is out in the world, you're just like almost more relieved than anything else that you're not carrying it around with you. Absolutely. So... uh, I remember, so we, we did these YA books uh, the past couple of years, my writing partner and I, and there was such a huge gap in time from the time we wrote it to it actually coming out that we almost forgot how to talk about it. Yes. What, what has been the gap? Like, what, what has that interim been like for you? Oh, I started, I got the idea for the book in December 2015. Mm-hmm. So I've been actively working on this for three years. So it just feels so nuts. It's such a, I mean, publishing is slow. Most art is slow. Film is slow. Publishing is super slow. And And you come, we should say, you come from film. Yes. You know about this. Yeah. So it's. Uh, You've been a producer for many years. And it's so interesting that by the time the thing that you make comes out, you're already excited about the next thing that you're doing because that's what you're working on. And you're like, yeah, I wrote this book, whatever. Let (laughs) me tell you about this other thing that I'm doing that you won't see for another 15 years. So it's very surreal and you have to almost time travel to get yourself back into that headspace where you are excited and passionate and you're like, it's Mm -hmm. like reviving your marriage. You're like, we've been together (laughs) for so long. We got to give it one last go. We got to get the fire stoked again. So it's really interesting to like get yourself back into that headspace. This book is um, certainly not what I expected. Um, yes. Even <laughs> even talking about with you, you know, a year ago. Yeah. Um, it is, as I described it to someone, it is a biography. Yes. Uh, it's also an autobiography. Yes. You know, it's, it's a feminist treatise. Yes. Uh, it's a <laughs> story of film history. Uh, there's so much contained in this book that I'm, the, my biggest question was really just about the nuts and bolts of it of like, how did the stories not how did the story start to come together? Because it feels like we know your starting yeah. point. You wanted to tell Millicent's story, but um, like, how did you contain these things <laughs> in three hundred pages? Well, it sort of grew really organically. That I always tell people it's like Julie and Julia, but for monsters. Because <laughs> so a I, great way to put it. So I started. I you know I wanted to tell Millicent Patrick's story. Millicent Patrick is the woman who designed the creature from the Black Lagoon, and she got blacklisted in Hollywood, and no one knew what happened to her. And she's been my hero for a long time. Uh, and then I was working on it. I was researching her, and I was talking to. I I feel like nerds always need at least one non-nerd friend to keep you keep you going straight and I was talking to a friend of mine Kate Gaffney who is a very talented actress and writer and director but she's a normal person like she doesn't like nerdy things normal you know person. she has clothes that aren't black like she's just <laughs> a n- nice normal lady and I was telling her about the book and she said Mallory that's really cool but why would someone who's who isn't interested in monster mm-hmm. movies want to know about Millicent Patrick? And the first words out of my mouth were because what happened to her is still happening today. And she was like, Mallory, that's that's it right there. So I started thinking, okay, well, how is this relevant? I'm a filmmaker. I work in film. I deal with sexual harassment all the time. So I started putting my own stories into it as a way to illustrate. Because it's so easy to be like, you know what? Yeah, this sad thing happened to this lady like 60 years ago. What a bummer. Mm-hmm. But the real urgency of it is it's not just some sad thing that happened 65 years ago. It's something that women in every artistic industry deal with every day. Every industry for that Yeah. So I started saying, okay, yes, this happened to her. And here's something that's similar that happened to me, you know, a year ago. And all of a sudden it really started to flow a lot better. Hmm. So it really – and then I started doing, you know, my thoughts on some of this stuff from like a feminist perspective. Because monster stuff, we've had – like the guy perspective on it for basically ever. Mm -hmm. And I really wanted to write the book that I wanted to read of like, okay, why is horror important to women? Why are monsters important to women? What is it like for women? And then it just sort of grew and all of a sudden it was – what it is now. And my editor at Hanover Square Press, who is a champion, he's amazing, Peter Joseph, he really encouraged it. He was like, mm-hmm. I want you to actually take your stories and Millicent's story and just sort of swirl them together. I really want them mixed. And I, you know, I love working with him. I think learning to work with an editor is such an important part of being a writer, hmm. learning to be edited and take edits and take criticism. And I was like, you know what? Yeah, let's do this. And I trusted him. And it 
it just worked. It was one of those weird things where I'm like, okay, wow, this is working. Oh my gosh, all right, let's do this. Um, you touched on a couple of things that I want to pick up on and sort of dig in on. Um, but first is like, I grew up a monster kid. Um, you know, monsters were important to me and still are. Yeah. Um, but I am curious about like what it means to be a girl who likes monsters. And I feel like you do touch on this in the book, but it's worth talking about. Too. Oh, yeah. Well, that's what's so interesting to me. And it, I grew up in a lot of male dominated fandoms. I'm a, I'm a mm-hmm. metal fan, I'm a monster kid. But part of being a monster kid is really uh uh, empathizing with being an outsider, mm-hmm. and that's something an experience that everybody has, and so it's and so many women have that. Especially like what's funny is that when you're a monster kid and you're a female, you are having the experience of being a monster because you are the weird outsider in that community. Yeah. So it's so ironic and strange where you're like, I'm the one in this group of monster kids that really empathizes with the creature more than any of these guys right. do because I'm the one who stands out. So it it's really, more of a one to one correlation. Yeah. So. So it really, and it's so amazing that all these women out there love monster movies without really seeing themselves in it. And I, like, I can never yeah. imagine like what it would be like if we, because there's still no big female monster. There are some like there's the movie like She Creature. Yeah, and nothing that has broken through like nah. the Universal monsters. Exactly. Did. I mean, there's Bride of Frankenstein, right. but I. That's I, all designed though. Yeah, and also <laughs> like she gets like two minutes in the movie. Yeah. Like she doesn't get to do anything cool. Yeah. So well, she looks really. cool. She does look. Really cool. Elsa Lancaster yeah, made a count. So I think that I can't even imagine what it would be like to have a female monster like mm-hmm. that. So it's so interesting to me to see like how far we've made it on just scraps, like little, little yeah. scraps, and how important monsters should be to women, and why I think that if it, the whole industry was a little bit and fandom was a little bit more kind, how many more women would come out of the woodwork and be like, actually, I really love this stuff, but I was afraid to say so because this is not a like a right. kind of fandom. It's not for girls. Yes. Yeah. Uh, or we've been told it's not for girls. Yeah, Do you yes. think, this is just occurring to me, if this is dumb, we can take this out. Um, would it be redundant to have a female monster? A classic female monster? Uh, what's funny is that, yeah, I mean, there are, I mean, we have witches and stuff. We have sexy right. vampires. There are female monsters out there, but they're so sexualized. I think hmm. it would be so powerful to have, like, a female Godzilla or a female Frankenstein, just something where you see a woman or see a female monster not doing, like, not being a mom or, like, doing very typical female things, but just, like, smashing stuff right. like just being mad like I think it would be super cool just killing a blind girl yeah you know just <laughs> normal everyday things that we that we all do the monsters love to do yeah killing killing people you know it's a great way to get at some stress out um and why do you think there is and and maybe there's no answer to this but like you are you you did grow up as a girl in these fandoms and there is a barrier to entry for a lot of women. I mean, my wife didn't read a comic book until I started writing comic books. Aww. You know, like, what is that barrier to entry? Is it, it can't just be the over-sexualization, which I think probably plays a part in it. It definitely plays a part, but it's not all of no, it. No, because it's the fandom, too. Yes. There's a weird, uh, and I've experienced this countless times, with, a, and this is with comics, with music, with movies. There's this weird entry exam that you get. Mm-hmm. There's so many, you can't just casually like things. And that's why I think there's a lot of pressure on women. I used to be the kind of person, I was like, I can't wear a heavy metal shirt. I can't wear a band shirt unless I know every album, every song, because some guy, and it's happened to me, some guy is going to come up and quiz me about it. So there's so much pressure. You know, you can't just like casually get into these things because the guys are are so protective of it and you stick out so much that they're like, oh, there's a girl who likes monster movies. Well, what's your favorite monster? Well, who directed that movie? There's already a target on you. Yes. So you feel like you can't just sort of dabble in it safely without like Hmm. being all ready to go. Like I, the thought of a group of female monster nerds that like if I could have that when I was a teenager, I can't even... It's like having a bunch of alien friends. Like I can't, couldn't even imagine what that would have been like for me. Yeah. Uh, do you think it's changing? Very slowly, but it is changing. Uh, thanks to the internet, people mm-hmm. can find each other better. For sure. People are making a lot better art. And I think, I mean, comics is such a huge thing. It's like, I mean, mm-hmm. it's like, it's so funny. Women have liked comics for so long 
but now they're finally able to find each other yeah. and to make comics and to put them out by themselves without you know a, a publisher and I think that's happening in all industries and there's a lot of amazing women telling monster stories I like people like Becky Cloonan like mm-hmm. that are great comic book uh, makers or filmmakers and I think it's definitely big ships turn slowly absolutely so there's a lot of especially in the fandom there's a lot of I mean I can't tell you how many times already at events I've had guys come up and try to tell me creature facts I'm like listen dude I wrote the book on this <laughs> why well, you talk about this in the book too. Yeah. it's as you're doing your research and a lot of the book is about discovering the story yeah um, which I thought was really like as a process nerd I love that stuff um, but yeah you have these guys telling you either you're wrong mm-hmm. or quizzing you or telling yeah. you things you already know um, the thing that really struck me, one of the other things that this book seems to be about, is women helping women. Yeah. Um, so much of your leads, so ma- or so many of your leads, so much of the information that you gathered came from women helping you. Yeah. Um, I'm I'm curious to hear about that and whether or not you realized it at the time. I didn't uh, until I got really deep into the book and I was mm-hmm. like, oh my god, it's all the ladies who are helping me out. I think that we. In any industry, women really stick. They do do one of two things. Either they're pitted against each other Mm -hmm. because they're the only ones and you have to fight for that girl, the girl slot. Or they say, screw that. And they all band together, which me and a lot of my colleagues and friends do. I mean, I we I this is something I do in my day job all the time with film, even with podcasting. Like my uh, I co-host Reading Glasses, which you have been on. My co-host Bria Grant and I help each other with everything. Mm -hmm. And as I was writing the book, I had this moment. I was like, it's the women who are making this possible because there were so many things in Millicent's story and the story of the creature and all the other things she worked on that were just there laying around, but Mm -hmm. no one had noticed them because the guys weren't like either wrote her off or just didn't notice it. And it's the women out there who were like, oh, I'm putting these pieces together. I can help you out. And it was just like, oh, my God, you guys are amazing. (laughs) (laughs) It's cool to see. And it's not generational either. It's it's. You know, the archivist was in there, or the librarian, whatever she was. Librarians, Um, other authors, uh, young women. It's just been incredible. And people, I was, we were talking a little bit before we started recording about how nervous I was about this book because it's made a lot of men angry. But what's made it all worth it, what's made every angry email and angry tweet (laughs) worth it is the amount of emails and tweets I've gotten from women who've read this book and said, oh my God, this book is for me. That's great. And that just makes it all worth it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, what are the men angry about? What I think people are really grumpy about is the fact that they wanted a biography of Millicent Patrick because she's the hot chick who designed the creature. They And that's how they look at her. Hot chick who designed the creature. And But you can't talk about Millicent Patrick's story without talking about why it happened to her. Mm-hmm. It's impossible to do. You cannot tell her story in a vacuum. So I talk a lot about why it happened, why it's still happening. uh, You know, I talk a lot about feminism. I am a feminist. You can't tell the story correctly without that. And they don't want that. (laughs) They just wanted to know. They just want to know creature facts, and they want to look at pictures of Millis and Patrick. And that's not (laughs) what this book is. It's just not. Yeah, I guess it is. It's it's about that expectation, right, being thwarted, and that it's so wrapped up in feminism and and men and women and film history which they yeah. they hold so precious yes um it's interesting to me um i want to you you touched on um reading glasses i want to take a second to plug that podcast oh thank you so much i don't often get to talk about books on this show um <laughs> and since reading glasses came along i feel like i don't have to yeah oh thank you uh we have you two to talk about books and you ha- always have great guests and even when you don't have great guests you have great lists of books and conversations about books we have a lot um, of fun with it and we had okay. a lot uh, if listeners want to go check out your episode where we talk about scary comics that was fun we get a lot of fan mail about that episode still oh, that's nice. that's great. uh yeah it's i mean we uh reading glasses is a book show where we don't talk about books we really wanted a show where you can just tune in anytime mm-hmm. you don't have to have read anything you can be a comics reader you can be an e-reader you can be an audiobooks person and there's always something there for you we talk about reading not necessarily we don't review books which makes it we just wanted something where people can pop in and out it's so frustrating when you go to like find a literary podcast and you're like oh i haven't read this book absolutely and that's why i don't do books on this show very often (laughs) it's It's, hard we all have the same sort of base of tv shows yes 
uh, books is tough. Um, but I have gotten great recommendations from you. Thank both you. Also, so it's not that you don't yeah, we, review things. You will recommend. Yeah, them. we do talk about things that we're reading and things yeah. that we like, but we don't do deep dives into books. Yeah. Anyway, it's great, folks, to go check it out. Thank um, you. You know, find a guest that you like or just find a topic that you like. Yes. It's always good. Um, let's talk about a little bit uh, the nuts and bolts of writing uh, The Lady from the Black Lagoon. A lot of the book, as I said, is about the research, but I want to talk about the writing, the sitting down and doing it. Um, when did you actually start taking all of your notes, all of the information you had gathered, and start Getting it down on paper was an ongoing process. Uh, did it come at once? Tell me about that. So it took me, it was about a year, year and a half before I actually started writing. Uh, I won't spoil it for listeners, but I do make a big break research breakthrough where I m- find someone very, very important that gives me, basically fills in all the blanks. Because up until that point, I had gotten a lot of the pieces of her career, mm-hmm. but I hadn't really got all the pieces of her life. And I w- didn't get a sense of her as a person. And I made make, make this big research breakthrough because I got some help from the Mormon church, which is very, yeah, very right. strange, <laughs> very strange circumstances. Uh, and that's really when I started writing because I finally had this hmm. massive breakthrough through and I got access to like almost 700 different piece individual pieces yeah. of her life like effects her, from her did you uh, let me interrupt for a sec did you and I apologize I'm gonna no, interrupt no. a lot because I want to sort of oh, dig yeah. in on some stuff but did you feel until that point for that year and a half that like either the thing was going to fall apart or you could sort of carry on with the career part but never really had that grasp on her so couldn't really tell the story I was worried about it for a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't sure that I would, hadn't even sold it at that point. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't didn't have an agent, and I you know I had this idea for this book, but it just really it wasn't coming together in the way that I wanted it to. And I probably could have written a book without that big breakthrough, but it would have it wouldn't have been a good book. It yeah. really just would have been it would have been more like an article of an mm-hmm. overview of her work, which is fine, but I really wanted to tell her whole story. So it wasn't until then that I started writing and it wasn't until then that I submitted a proposal to an agent because then I was like, all right, now I have access to everything. That's when I knew her whole life. Mm-hmm. And that's when I knew the start, the end, and I was able to f- I mean, I still had some holes and I started writing then and I t- I kept researching while I was writing. I kept right. researching until the final pe- page proof passed yeah. because there were things were still coming in. It was funny. There were people who didn't want to talk to me until the book had already sold. And then all of a sudden people who had never answered my emails before came out <laughs> of the woodwork and they were like, oh yeah, of course, I'll, t- I'll talk to you on the phone. It's funny too. The book has such like a living document feel because so much of your process is in there. But you do feel like it's being written up until the minute that you yes. have to turn it in. Literally, I mean, that's how how it happened. I mean, when it's you're wild. you're basically reverse engineering a life, mm-hmm. and I, you know, there's that uh, theory that some half half of writers are uh, architects and half of them are gardeners. And I am an architect to the T. If I I, I outline my entire day, <laughs> I outline my life. Yeah. So this book was so heavily heavily outlined, but in those in between spots, things were constantly being put in and mm-hmm. added and changed around and it wasn't until the very last page proof pass where you add, I did all the captions for the photos which I will have to give you a final copy so you can see <laughs> I know I gotta see that. there's no photos in this yes. proof that I got <laughs> I'll give you a fi- I finally just got <laughs> final copies in uh, but there are a bunch of photos and we didn't one of the one of the photos we got we didn't get it till the very end hmm. we just got the rights to it like right before oh we. so it was uh, <laughs> it was really it was hard for me because I'm such a scheduler I'm so yeah. organized that's just how I write I can't start and Unless I can see the way forward. Mm-hmm. Some people, my partner is just a complete pantser. Like he just goes and I can't, to me, it's like driving without headlights on. Like I've, I can't see where I'm going. I can't get there. Yeah. But some people sure, could do course. that. But for uh, me, I'm a outliner to the max. But, but knowing that and knowing that about yourself, like what did the outline look like for that first year? Even if it was just in your head, what did you know as the structure of this book without having all the information. I, I knew it was going to start at the beginning of her life and end, mm-hmm. end at the end. Spoiler alert, she's not alive, which for, for which a chunk of the there book, was a question. I thought that I was going to find her yeah. alive, which was very, uh, very strange. And because she would have been 101, I believe. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so there was a chance. Yeah, there was yeah, totally yeah. a chance. Uh, but I, so I knew that. So I had a like a timeline of her life, and that was how the outline was. And I split it split it up between decades and, and events, and mm-hmm. you know big life events. So and that just got more and more detailed as as the year years went on, as time went on, and as I filled in more pieces. So I tried to structure it in that way. And in my mind, I had you know chunks and chapters, and. Um, it wasn't until about a year before I finished writing it that the outline was really solid. <laughs> and then I was like, okay, time to become a writing goblin and just get a like, you know, giant bucket of coffee and do this. Right. Oh, good. We'll get into that in a second. <laughs> um, was the Were the other parts of the book, the part that's part memoir, uh, the part that's about the research, was that built into yes. your conception of the book and, and the – Outline too? Yes. Once I realized, it was about a year in when I realized I need to put my parts of me in mm-hmm. the book. So I looked at what I had of her life and put my own relevant okay. stories. Okay, like what can what can I, what story can I tell about my life that makes this stand out? What can I what can I highlight that will make this stand out? And originally it was a Mallory chapter, Ma- Millicent chapter, Mallory chapter, Millicent chapter. It was my editor who was like, "No, what? No, you really gotta just braid it all together." Yeah. And uh, it totally worked out. So the outline I sold was uh, it was the double double amount of chapters, but shorter chapters, mm-hmm. and like me and me and her. Um, but when after we sold it, he was uh, at every uh, the structure changed again. But that That's was smart. all built in because mm-hmm. again, I can't, I can't even write about myself without an outline. It's just <laughs> no, how I am. <laughs> I, absolutely, I'm I'm with you. Um, let's talk about sort of putting together that proposal and getting the agent and stuff like that. A lot of people wouldn't even know where to start. Yeah, I well, I really lucked out because I was already talking to the agent okay. and he, my agent now Brady McReynolds who is just the greatest and I am so biased but I love him so much he was already an acquaintance of mine uh, so he the whole the whole book started as a conversation about a tattoo I have about Millicent right. and he was like that is such a great story even though you don't know where it's going mm-hmm. he's like if you can put together a proposal I will re- represent it. It took me, it was an, and people, a lot of people think that I got like a book deal as soon as that conversation right. was over, but it was a year after that. Mm-hmm. I had, I did a year's worth of research and put everything together, but he sent me like a mock up of like, mm-hmm. okay, this is what a nonfiction proposal looks like. And I worked off of that. Okay. But that's stuff that people, if people are interested in writing nonfiction, you don't have to write the entire book before you sell it. You, there are, these are things that are really easily found online. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a lot more accessible than people think it is. And that's, actually something I really like talking about because I have no writing degree. I, I, I didn't even graduate high school. Yeah, you know, like 500 words. Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that. And that's the book. That's why it's so short. It's only 300. <laughs> it's one big word on each page. Uh, so it's I, I feel like there's this idea that being a writer, whether you're writing a book or a screenplay or a pilot or whatever, it's like this, you know, mystical thing that you have to go to school for and you have to know all these things. But a lot of the stuff is just available online. Absolutely. For free. Yeah. It, I just totally encourage people to just start, you know, even if you don't have the format right, you know, find you can find a writing group online. You can find mock-ups of proposals and pilots and screenplays. Absolutely. It's really, really easy. You just have to do the work. Yeah. And it's not that much work to find no. that stuff. It, no. It really, really isn't. And honestly, people are like, wow, you wrote this book. And I'm like, yeah, I sold it without writing the whole thing. Yeah. Like, it's not as monumental of a task as people think it is that I thought it was. Well, and you also, I mean, you knew there was a story there. You had this this hooky concept. Yes. Which was an important idea. Yes. Um, a story that hadn't been told. Yes. But certainly that does a lot of work for selling something before yes. uh, before writing it. Uh, that is actually one thing. I actually taught a class on pitching last mm-hmm. year uh, because I think pitching is one of the most important parts of being a writer. And it's, it's so hard. It is so hard. It's learning to talk about your work. And I think it's something that and networking are two really important parts of being any kind of writer mm-hmm. that nobody teaches you about, even in school. Yeah. Which I've, I have heard. I have never – I've never been to college. Or <laughs> no, I have been to sure. college, but I dropped out. Uh, so – it's, it's this like weird intangible skill set that you can really only learn by doing, yeah. but it's so important. Yeah. And you, I mean, night and day, I see, I see so many great artists and writers who are so talented, but they can't figure out how to talk about their work in a way that's engaging and snappy. And they're, you know, it breaks my heart. I'm like, you got to learn how to do this. Yeah. Uh, so don't don't give away the farm, but like, no. what do you talk about in that 
in teaching how to pitch? Uh, my best advice is always just figuring out how to boil down your topic. You know, uh, people either go one of two ways when they're pitching their projects. Either they want, all of a sudden, you know, they roll out this giant scroll and, you know, <laughs> yeah. talk to you for 20 minutes and tell you the entire thing, or they sort of mumble something that is, you know, my, my best tip is no one's going to be more enthusiastic about your project than you are. So don't be afraid. I hate when writers mm -hmm. always, they self-reject and they sell themselves short. They're like, oh, you know, I, I just did this thing. If you're not excited about something, nobody else is going to be. No, I mean, your friends might try to help you out, but you have to just get yourself out there and then boil it down. Start with a paragraph and then it's like playing, it's like a operation, you know, try to pick out the, the things that can go mm -hmm. and see what really you boil down to. And like, then all of a sudden you'll have something that you you can say in two sentences it makes you feel more confident like memorize it do it in front of the mirror if you Absolutely. need to oh that's horrible yeah it, it <laughs> is but it's true but some shy people need to do yeah. that and saying it out loud makes a huge difference yes just practice it i said pitch pitch to your friends yeah it's you know it might make you feel kind of sad but i've done it i pitched but up to my no partner stakes. all the time yeah there's no stakes yeah. and you know have find a friend that's going to be honest with you but it really is so important and it makes all the world of difference if you're at some kind of party and you meet someone who might be able to help you if you have a way to pitch your project really quickly yeah. and really compellingly all of a sudden you're the writer that that person's going to remember at that party absolutely being memorable makes a big difference yes um uh being memorable for saying something people want to hear yes. makes a big difference. Yes. Um, I will say for a sort of longer form pitching, uh, I think this was in like the first six months of doing this podcast, we got the best piece of advice. I think it was from Damon Lindelof who said to pitch your story as if it was a movie you just saw that you can't wait to tell your friends about. Wow. Which is which means when you wind up pitching it, you're only telling the best parts. Yeah. You're like, this happens, and this cool thing, and this cool thing, and then it's over. Yeah. And it's like... They give the highlight the reel. Yeah, exactly. And I think I still That's think of that advice. every time we have to go pitch something. That's really great. It is. Um, okay. So so this deal sort of came together over the year. You, you put together the proposal, um, which seems like it was pretty much what the book became. Yes. Um, but then you mentioned earlier learning how to work with an editor, which yes. I'm really curious to hear about. Yeah, it was great. I mean, I up until this point, up until when I started writing Lady from the Black Lagoon, I've been a filmmaker for, you know, almost six years. I have written screenplays. I've sold screenplays. And, but, you know, you don't – unless you have a movie in production – you're not really getting notes. You know, if you're writing stuff on spec or you're, you know, selling short stories online or you're just writing blog posts, you're not, it's not as active. It's right. not as, it's like, not collaborative. Yes. And learning to work with an editor, I think, is so important because what people have to remember is that when you're working with an editor, they're not yelling at you. <laughs> they're not saying yes. that you're bad. <laughs> they are giving you advice because they want to make what you're doing better. Yeah, and they're, they're invested. Yes, exactly. They're only doing this because they like your work. So a lot of people, you know, they get their edit letter back and they're like, oh, they're making me change all this stuff. It's so sad. I'm like, because they love it, yeah. because they want it to be better. And it's really, it's a lot easier when you stop getting precious about things and just sort of like are willing to to listen to other people. It's the, such an important skill. And it, I mean, it, it is hard. No one likes, you know, when you pass something in, you're like, haha, I am the best right. writer. I am I've so, done it. Yes. <laughs> they're going to send it back to me with a bow on it. And it's going <laughs> to be great. And then you get all those edits back and you're like, oh, crap. Was uh, this a learning curve for you? Were you prepared for this kind of feedback? Sort of. I'm at, I I get really excited about collaborating. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't as hard for me as I think for some yeah. writers it, it is. Um, but there was a part of me, and I will openly admit this, I haven't actually talked about this before, that when we sold this book, I was like, I don't know how I feel about a man editing me. Sure. Because it's a very female-centric story. But my what's funny is my editor, Peter, was he was the one who was like, this guy's a piece of crap. You really have to <laughs> ram it home how, piece of, how, how horrible this guy was. And yeah. I was like, oh, wow, okay, cool. It's really about finding someone you respect. And if you respect your editor, I mean, it's like getting great writing advice from someone you really, really admire. And instead of being defensive, I just was like, wow, thank you. I was so grateful yeah. and so excited about it. But it definitely is, you just learn. And for a while, my the first, I sent this to him in four parts because the pup date for this got bumped up by, like, first oh, it was supposed really? to come out in June. Then it was supposed to come out in May, then April, and then March. Because while I was writing the book, Me Too happened. 
and Shape of Water happened. Oh, so shit. So all of a sudden... <laughs> oh, by the way, this book is Shape of Water meets me too. <laughs> yeah, so all of a sudden... It's a great pitch. <laughs> it is. So all That's of a sudden, funny. my editor is like, uh, can we write this book faster? Oh, my uh, So I sent it... So I would send him the first part while I was working on the second part. And so it was being edited and written at the hmm. same time. And so the first round of edits, I just listened to every... I just, without thinking incorporated every single idea he had until it was finally I was like wait I can push back this can be a conversation <laughs> yeah. this isn't like a laundry list of things I have to do this is a conversation between right. me and Peter and all of a sudden I was like this is fun That's this great. is great so what kind of stuff were you getting in that first uh, edit on that first part well, it was um, a lot of, you know, some stuff like just basic, right, like technical sure. stuff, like make this a little bit clearer, um, make this joke a little funnier. Find yourself an editor that makes your dick jokes funnier. That's all I can say. <laughs> Peter is just fantastic. Uh, but also, you know, he would say, OK, a lot of it was mixing my story with hers. And he would say, all right, well, this story right here doesn't seem to fit with this part of her life. Is there another place that we can put this? And he was always right. So hmm. it was really a lot of it was was structural stuff mm -hmm. um but and then a lot of the other stuff was him really pushing to make sure that i was going as far as i can like mallory don't don't pull back your punches on this stuff show how bad these people were show how great these people were really go all the way and he just kept you know as a debut author as a first time book writer i you know i was like i don't know how far i can go i you wondered know? about that and and how do you push yourself to go further to to dig deeper it was peter my mm -hmm. editor was That's really great. like, don't be afraid. Don't hold back. And after by the by the fourth part of the book, I was like, all right, screw <laughs> this guy. Screw that guy. But, it, you know, it was a big conversation with him. And I, it's a skill. Honestly, I hope I get to work with him again. I'm working on three other books right now. So um, but it's a skill that I am going to keep cultivating. And I really, really uh, hope that I get to utilize it more in the future. Do you feel like you were able to be honest about yourself in the memoir part? Uh, at first, I didn't. And then Peter also was, it was really encouraging about just talking about things that happened. Um, you know, uh, one of the things about me and Millicent is that I empathize with her a lot because her and I have a, like there are a lot of similar things. Mm -hmm. I'm also I'm estranged from my parent from my parents. She's estranged from her parents. And there were weird parts where I was like, wow, this is really personal stuff that I'm writing about. Um, and also, I tell some stories about bad people in Hollywood who've done bad things to me and it was weird it was it was a weird way to write where I was like okay how can I tell this story without revealing who this person is mm. and there was it was definitely there were some parts that were walking on eggshelly and uh, working with my editor really helped that and he was just having another person be like this is okay this mm -hmm. is not so bad that's great because you know when you're talking about something personal to you it feels like this big monumental thing but to someone else they're like no it's fine you're totally good yeah. so it's really important to have that outside feedback um what did your writing days look like once you're once you're really in the swing of it and and i ask this sort of generally for this book but really anything you're working on uh, you know, you're working on a lot of things, uh, not all in the same medium, Yeah. Um, which like I do too, which a lot of people we know do um, because we just like to do the work. Yes. Um, what does your actual writing process look like? So uh, I, am, I do my filmmaker stuff during the day mm -hmm. uh, or during the morning. I work on my podcast midday. Then I take a break. I take lunch. I work out, and I'm a night writer. I just, really? I am a word vampire. I like to write at night. It's the weirdest thing. All I hear it so rarely. Yeah, all, all of a sudden, as soon as the sun goes down, it. I just that's when I want to write, and I. It might have to do with the fact that I can have a glass of bourbon while I'm writing. But <laughs> I do it's, that in the morning. <laughs> that's true. I do work from home. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but I just uh, around five o'clock. I like to write from like depending on when sun, the sun goes down until about eight, nine, ten o'clock at night. And that's I just, so that's when I get my, that's when I get everything out. And I've tried to write during the day and that's when I do my outlining. Okay. And that I can do any old time. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the process of really just being creative, I have to do it between Funny. five and 10 at night. What is different in your mindset between the daytime and nighttime? I think because I'm such an organized person, there's a, this weird release where I'm like, mm. okay, I've gotten everything done that I need to get done during the day. I've done my day job stuff. I've done my podcast stuff. I've looked at my emails for the day. I'm finally free. My brain, all, all obligations are met. I can just focus on being creative. That's neat. 
And some people have to do that first thing in the morning. They want right. to get, you know, want to get all their stuff out. My partner is a morning writer, which makes it very hard for us when we do collaborations. <laughs> We're working on a screenplay together, and we just stopped writing together because we couldn't. It was like Lady Hawk, you know. <laughs> I'm like, maybe we can do it in the afternoon, you know, right? But right, right as I At started. Dusk. <laughs> yes, no joke. It was so funny, and we just gave up. But yeah, for me, it's just I have. I'm such an. I'm a very anxious person. I am very scheduled person. So it's when I get all of my other stuff done, then my brain's like, That's okay, really cool. Now the word. Now we will turn on the word faucet, sure. and off you go. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's it's getting rid of those barriers, right? Yes. It's like getting the creative part to sort of disassociate. Yes, seriously. It's really funny. When do you eat? Uh, oh, I mean, I you know I eat in the morning. I I, I have dinner really early. <laughs> I'm or, worried about you eating. No, well, don't worry. My partner <laughs> cooks all my food. Oh, perfect. He's so at my. He's great. He will just if I'm really writing, he'll just bring a plate of food and leave it on my desk. <laughs> he's the greatest. Because I just uh, it's just this weird thing. And what does your space look like? Uh, I have a Harry Potter office. Uh, I write under the staircase. Uh, oh we live God, in a big hilarious. weird art loft, and uh, so we have all kinds of strange spaces. But I need. I needed a little den. Mm-hmm. So when we were rearranging the house, we found out underneath our stairs, like I had just like slid a, d- a chair under there to get it out of the way for a moment. I was like, oh my God, I could fit under there. Oh my God. And so then I painted it and put up all my art and my desk fits in there perfectly. <laughs> and I just love it because I feel like I'm in this little writing den. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard for writers to like, If you, we we don't have a lot of spaces to close a door. And where mm-hmm. I was previously writing, we were, I was in our library, but it's an open, open space. We have lots of cats. The cats could come in. I could just get bothered. But when I'm in this sort of enclosed spot, I am in like, I, no one can bother me. Mm-hmm. I'm in my writing zone. And it just sort of felt like, okay, my brain can work in here. And I have my desk. I have, t- as a nonfiction writer, I just have piles of research materials sure. everywhere. I have a special extender on my desk. I pull it out. It's <laughs> like, you know, in the kitchen where you have like a pull out chopping sure. board. I have that for my desk, but then I can put extra stacks of books because oh I just have notebooks everywhere of all my notes. Uh, everything I do, writing, I have three books that I'm working on. They're all nonfiction. Mm-hmm. So I just, you know, oh, I have wow. a bookshelf next to my desk with all my research books. Um, more notebooks and um, normally a cat around somewhere. Sure. But yeah, it's my little writing space. That's really great. That it's sounds awesome. Uh, do you listen to music when you write? Yes, absolutely. I'm definitely what do you music. Uh, I'm a big Tom Waits fan. Uh, mm-hmm. It also it so you listen to stuff with lyrics, yeah, which a lot of people don't. I can I can tune out. What I I, I really like to sort of match up the music. Mm-hmm. I do make playlists for all of my books. Absolutely. And really, like right now, I'm working on a YA book, so I'll like listen to stuff that's a little more fun, a little more poppy. Uh, one of the other uh, nonfiction books I'm working on is uh, uh, I can't even I'll, uh, the, yeah, the subject. Don't give it away. <laughs> I can't give it away, but the subject matter uh, makes me think of like Tom Waits and swing music and like okay. electro swing and like nightclub like night, nightclubs from the 30s kind of music. Uh, so I've been listening to a lot of that. Uh, but I also I love listening to really heavy metal. Because it keeps me pumped up, and if I can't listen to lyrics, I just listen to death metal, and I can't understand what they're saying anyways. So it's great. When you are uh, in the zone, how long do you write for? Do you set yourself goals? Four hours at a time. It's amazing. I can only write for up to four hours before it's like it really physically feels like I am running into a wall. Yeah, my brain is just like, okay, you're done. That's all you can do. Even I, when I'm really in the thick of it, I try to get at least you know a thousand, two thousand words mm-hmm. a night. Um, and if that happens in the four hours, great. Sometimes it does. Sometimes I get more. Mm-hmm. I've had some days where I was like, holy crap, I just wrote ten thousand words tonight. Oh my gosh. Right. And then I've had nights where I'm like, I wrote. Two sentences, right. but four hours, that's really all I can do. And it's, I think people don't realize how physically exhausting it is. Oh can my be. God. I stumble out of my little Harry <laughs> Potter office and I, my body hurts and I'm like really hungry yeah. and I'm just tired. It really, I have, I try to, I have, can I, I have, it's kind of a gross writing hack. But one of my writing hacks is I drink a ton of water because then I will get forced to stand up because I have to pee. <laughs> That's really so it's like, because, you know, when you're writing, all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, three hours just went by. Yeah. But if I drink a ton of water, my body's like, hey, you have to stand up at least so you can go to the bathroom. That's really funny. I There was a writer in here recently who I was talking about habits with um, who sort of does the opposite. It's to make herself write. She will set herself tiny goals like oh. you can't have water oh until you finish writing this scene. <laughs> 
That's great, and though. So she'll get through it so she's not dying. <laughs> but, like, whatever it takes, right? Yeah, I mean, that's, I feel like we all sort of discover our process. Yeah, and that's, I think we have to really sort of, people have this idea that writers sort of oh, stretch and you wake up and the muse is there and you spit out 10 chapters. But honestly, like, I, and I don't even write every day. You have to find out what works for mm-hmm. you. And there's no shame if you write once a week and you get a bunch of stuff done. If you write a little bit every day, an hour a day, or just like once a month, mm-hmm. you know, if you write during the day, write at night, write with bourbon, write with coffee, you know, you just find out what really works for you. Some people setting goals is really great. Some time goals or, you know, you can't eat. That is mm-hmm. more but extreme. Pages but pages or scenes or whatever. Yeah. yeah and you just, well, I, I like, works. I like, ma- I'm all about the manageable chunks if mm-hmm. I, my life was a soup flavor it would be manageable chunks <laughs> because it just like there's something really uh, cathartic about like wow i hit this goal because yeah. then you feel like oh i can do more of that so i will yes. if i am a ha- in like a spot where i'm having a hard time writing i'll give myself the most easy writing goals i'm like just write for an hour yeah. write one sentence and then most 99 of the time you hit that you've written for that one hour and then you're like i could write more I could write for another half hour. And then before you know it, you're really in the rhythm of it. It's For me, it's all about taking the pressure off mm-hmm. and not feeling That's like right. – it's like going to the gym. You know, if immediately you're like, I have to work out for two hours a day. You're never going to get there because right. you don't want to do that. But if you're like, you know what? If I can run half a mile, yeah, all of a sudden you want to do more. Yeah. For sure. That's a great attitude. Was this something you had to learn for yourself? Oh, yes. For for a really long time, I had this idea that I was like, okay, I have to write every day. Mm-hmm. I have to write for like eight hours at a time because this is my job now. I have to get all this stuff done. And it was killing me. I was so stressed out and so exhausted. And like after that four hours, it is like pulling teeth. But I felt like I was failing. And after a yeah. while, I was like, we no. We put that on ourselves. Yes. And then I wouldn't write. Yeah. So instead of yeah. writing for you know, four hour chunks every day during the week, I was not writing at all and then feeling even worse. (laughs) So once I gave myself permission to write the way that I needed to, then I was like, oh, wait, I could do this every day. This is it's all about sustainability, Mm -hmm. finding a way to be able to do it long term. Yeah, I think that's that's it's funny. I've been having this conversation a lot lately, and that's the thing that keeps coming up is like, Maybe when you're 20, you can yeah. you can write for hours and hours at a time and, you know, you can do 20-hour days. But, like, if you want to live through this and yeah. make this your living. Yes, that's the key right there is if you want to be a writer, you have to find a way to to repeat all of this, yeah. to do it every day. Not every day or do it as do often what, as yeah. you can to get your stuff done. Right, to put out the pages. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, were there... Let's sort of talk about two aspects of The Lady from the Black Lagoon. One is Millicent's story, um, which I was describing to someone, a friend the other day, in recommending the book, saying, like... Oh, thank you. She, she, you know, the hook is sort of The Lady from the Black Lagoon. She had this crazy Forrest Gump through Hollywood experience. Yes. Um, I assume you didn't... You weren't aware of that stuff until you started doing the research. No, that's the crazy part. People have asked me what I made up for the book. And I said, I can't. What? I was like, I can't make this stuff up. She, you know, going into this project, I knew she had designed the creature from the Black Lagoon. That alone was enough to make me want to tell her her story. But as I started researching her, she was also one of the first female animators at Disney. She grew up at Hearst Castle. Like, she had this crazy life. Like, her romantic life was crazy. Like, all this stuff. And I was just like, I cannot make this up and I couldn't believe it and it really that like that those were the big chunks that started to fall into place because mm-hmm. before it was like creature was like the big part of the book and then it actually got smaller and yeah. smaller as the research went on because I was like oh my god I have to write a whole huge chapter on just the Disney stuff yeah which was all equally fascinating yeah it's and crazy like, anyone like when you pick this book up as a monster fan you're gonna get that oh, yeah. you're gonna get all this st- other stuff that is so interesting and is still about all of the things that the book is about. Yes, it's, a, it's like a cross-section of California history, yeah. Hollywood history, film history. And also, I do want to say, no one ha- you don't have to have seen The Creature from the Black no. Lagoon. I tried to make it accessible. I hate film stuff where people are like, I'm going to just talk in all these terms, but I'm not going to tell you what any of them mean because I'm a filmmaker and mm-hmm. I know all this stuff. I try to make it really, really accessible for people. Yeah, there's no technical minutiae. I mean, I don't know anything about makeup or creature 
design and it was still very understandable yes. to me. Um, and, and I mean, more than understandable, it, it became fascinating. Oh, thank you. Um, what, what she gets to do, what she doesn't get credit for, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Um, what were the, for, for her story, what were the big surprises for you along the way that, that maybe changed the course of thinking about the book? Well, I mean, one was all the um, other stuff that mm. she had done. For me, I thought it was going to be pretty boring up until she gets got to Universal. And then all of a sudden, I was like, oh, my God, I have to do so much more research. Because <laughs> I couldn't just be like, oh, yeah, she grew up at Hearst Castle. I had to research the Hearsts. Mm. I had to research everything about where, what time period she was in. Yeah. So all of a sudden, I mean, it was a lot more work, it, but it made a better book. And it was just like the scope of her life. I, it was so surprising. That I was like... I, like, thank God for the Los Angeles Public Library, because I would not have been able to afford all of the books that I had to read for this. Sure. Uh, but also, one of the things I was really surprised about was how she didn't try to get justice for herself. Mm-hmm. And wh- and I understand, I, I talk in the book how I understand why, but one of the things that I, it was a mystery to me and was surprising, was that when I went into this, I was like, well, if I had got blacklisted by some guy, my head would have burst into flames and I would have, like, pushed him into the gutter. But she didn't do that. She just walked gracefully off stage. She did not put up a fight. And I was stunned by that. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until I stopped to think about it, because I think it's such a weird gut reaction we have when we hear these stories about women. And it's like, for, again, it was just like this weird internalized misogyny that I have where you're just like, well, why didn't she do anything? Why didn't she tell mm-hmm. anybody? Why didn't she put up a fight? And then it took me a moment to step back and be like, oh, because she's been fighting. She had been fighting. She'd been in the film industry for over 20 Her years. Life was fighting. Yes. So that's like, it was so surprising. And then it flipped over and became completely unsurprising to me. Right. But at first I was like, well, why didn't you do anything? Yeah. What, 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 oh my God. Yeah, it was interesting to read you grappling with that in, in that chapter. Yeah, it was hard. I had to forgive her. Yeah. You know, especially when there's only one woman who does a thing. She has to carry the hopes sure. of every other woman. And I was disappointed in her. Mm-hmm. And then I was like, how crappy of me <laughs> to, to, like, she already did so much. She doesn't have to be Wonder Woman. Right. So that, and then my reaction to that was very surprising. And it, she, writing about Millicent Patrick made me a better person. It's interesting. Um well, that was my other, the, sort of the other half of that question is, you know, what did you, what was surprising to learn about yourself in the process. It, well, I talk so much about misogyny and feminism and the two sides of that coin. Uh, and it was very surprising to see how much I had still internalized. Mm-hmm. And it's so, you know, as like not garbage people, we like to think <laughs> that we are, you know, we're enlightened and we, we're, we're, we're great and we're all, our best intentions are always there. Not realizing how much we internalize so much of this terrible garbage that's around us and the way that we look at the world, whether it's racism or sex sexism or homophobia you just absorb this stuff through like cultural osmosis and it was crazy to me to see how much of it was still in me hmm. as i was writing it and cuz i couldn't and that's why some of my reflections about parts of her life were so important to me cuz i wanted people to go on that journey with me mm-hmm. like when i was a teenager one of the things i didn't like about millicent was how feminine she was mm-hmm. you know i was like cuz i was struggling you know i was trying to it was like a zombie movie i was trying to pretend that i was part of this guy crowd i wore guy clothes right. i didn't wear any makeup i was like i'll just blend in and they won't know i'm here <laughs> and like thinking about millicent marching into universal in her like high heels and pearls and gorgeous gorgeous dresses that I was like, I didn't realize how upsetting it was to me. Mm-hmm. So when I was a teenager, I just thought it was stupid. And as I grew up, I was like, how badass is that? Like, how amazing. So it was just surprising how like, you know, all that stuff was still deep inside of me. Mm-hmm. And I had to like shovel it all out as I was writing this book. And it was, uh, again, it made me, I think it made me a better person. That's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, cut that out. I forget where I'm going with this. <laughs> um, I want to I wanted to ask about um, sort of other books that you looked at, if any, uh, before sort of settling in to write this book. Uh, quite a few, actually. Mm-hmm. I am uh, I'm a big reader, uh, but I wanted to get some sense of memoirs. So I uh, listened to uh, one of my favorite books, Priest Daddy by Patricia Lockwood. Oh, it is uh, it is a memoir of a woman whose father is a Catholic priest because he started out as a 
as some other Christ, type of Christian priest and got married, had a family, and then sort of laterally slid into Catholicism. So, But he was this wacky guy who only became a, a Christian because he was on a ship in the Navy and saw uh, the exorcist in a submarine and what? found God because it scared him so much. <laughs> so it's her memoir of growing up with this wacky Catholic priest as a dad, and it is hysterical, huh. but it's also super profound. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of, she will go from chapters that will make you cry laughing to these like very, very poignant reflections on the uh, influence of the Christian church on her life. So I I listened to a lot of memoirs like that that were a little weird because Lady from the Black Lagoon is a little unusual. So I wanted to get a sense of what other, what what you could do. Yeah. Um, I'm a big Mary Roach fan. Mm -hmm. uh, As you can see by this, there's a lot of footnotes in the book. Um, (laughs) It's actually something me and my editor really bonded on. Uh, So Mary Roach is, I think, the greatest nonfiction writer working right now. She does these deep, deep dives into taboo subjects. Uh, so I read a lot of her books, uh, a lot of memoirs, and then just lots of nonfiction. I read some biographies. Uh, interestingly enough, I read a biography that I loved and I didn't want to emulate at all. What was that? Uh, Ruth Franklin's a Rather Haunted Life. It's a biography of Shirley Jackson, who mm-hmm. is one of my favorite writers. Yeah. And the book is incredible. It is incredible. It is oh, an 18-hour long audio book. And I was like, I don't want to do anything like this. Because after a while, like, you know, the brand of underwear that Shirley Jackson oh, wore. Sure. You knew how many socks her husband had. <laughs> like Ruth Franklin went above and beyond and was so got every single detail of Shirley Jackson's life. And I loved that. But I realized that you could only do that if people have a following already. Mm-hmm. Like I am the kind I love Shirley Jackson so much that I was like, yes, tell me how many socks she had. I right. want to know this. But people didn't know who Millicent Patrick yeah. was. There's no baseline. Yeah. No one was like, all right, cool. I want to pick up this 500 right. million page <laughs> book about this woman. I don't know. I was like, I need to make this more engaging. Yeah. I need and like I need to like not skim, but I need to not go into every single detail. Sure. So there was a lot of books that had a lot of influence on this book. In, in weird ways. Well, you also had to think you couldn't go into that detail because yes. the information wasn't there. Yes. Uh, so that and it made me feel a lot better about mm-hmm. that because there are some things. There's uh, one of Millicent's husbands that I really almost know nothing about yeah, even now, um, which was heartbreaking because I just couldn't. There's this sure. information's not there. Uh, but it made me feel a lot better that I could sort of write, leave those gaps. Because when you're a super organized, anxious person, I'm like, I have to know everything. (laughs) I have to know everything about her life. And I realized that I could do it in a way that I didn't have to, not without leaving those parts out and it was still okay. Well, and and you've still written the definitive book on the Mills and Patrick. Which is so crazy to me. (laughs) Which is awesome. It's funny, I never wanted to write another biography because I, which I I actually am going back on and I am doing Mm -hmm. another biography now because you feel like you're an external hard drive for a person. Sure. Like I am the walking kiosk for Millicent Patrick. (laughs) I still, to this day, even more than her family, know more about her than anybody else in the world. And it was so much (laughs) pressure because I was like, I feel like she's in my head all the time. And she's my hero. So there was so like, I was like, oh, my God, I have to make sure that this is good because I wouldn't ever want her to disappoint her, even though she's not alive. Right. So I was like, I never want to do this again. It's like it's like getting married. You know, I finished the book and I was like, I'm never doing that again. It's too (laughs) emotional. And then, you know, about a year later, I was like, oh, crap, I have to have somebody else I want to write about. Um, but it, it, I don't know. I feel like the weight of that responsibility is evident in the book and it's taken so seriously and, and like you love her even as you're discovering her. You, the writer, and therefore we, the reader, uh, are experiencing that too. And, oh, and thank you. Really even works. writing about the bad things about her. Yeah. That was something that was super important. I think as a writer, when you're writing about people you admire, it's so easy to fangirl or fanboy or fan person. So – it was hard to write about the her fault her faults and her flaws because I was like I'm so was so protective of her. I was right. like, I just want everyone to love her. <laughs> and I was like, you know what? And people can't love her properly without knowing everything about Absolutely. her. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you pulled it off. Um, congratulations again. The Lady from the Black Lagoon is out today. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing a bunch of signings and things, right? I am right? going on book tour. Uh, I will be doing stuff all over the country. Uh, some of the things are readings. I'm doing uh, in conversations. I'm in conversation with great writers like Grady Hendricks and Maria Devon uh, Headley in great. New York. Uh, I'm doing some creature screenings. There's one here in Fun. L.A. There's one in New York. There's one in Austin. So if you want to go to my website, MalloryOMara.com, I have a full list of all the events and information and tickets and stuff so there's a lot of really cool stuff that we're doing yeah that's that all sounds really fun thank um, you congratulations on that let's wrap up by asking you um 
What are you putting in your brain these days? What are you reading? What are you watching? What are you listening to? You do all of it, so you have to talk about all of it. Yes, I'm doing a lot of reading right now. Right now we are in, uh, because I'm going on book tour uh, and my co-host of Reading Glasses is, all, is shooting a movie soon, we are, uh, we've been pre-recording a lot of the podcast. Mm-hmm. So I've been reading a lot of advanced review copies of authors that we're having on, which is exciting. That's fun. Honestly, this is the best part of about doing any sort of book-related <laughs> thing is you get free books. Totally. Um, so I'm reading a lot of fun books like that. I've been trying to read more wide. A uh, book I'm reading right now is called Belly Up by a writer called Eva Darrows, who is the pseudonym for a uh, horror writer named Hilary Monahan. Hmm. And it's like a Juno-esque book that's super, super fun. And, you know, when I'm uh, when you're doing a lot of events or you're doing a lot of writing, you just sort of want something that's a little bit lighter. Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know what, I'm going to read some more YA stuff. Um, and that's really fun. And I, what I'm watching right now... I am going on a journey of rewatching or of of watching the X Files because I had never oh, that's right. I had never seen You've it before. You've been tweeting about this, and it's been so much fun to watch. Oh my god, talk about this! <laughs> well, it's really fun for me because I feel like right now there's so many things coming out, and there's so much pressure to like watch the new thing, binge it, and talk about it online, and don't but and there's spoilers everywhere. That it was so nice to watch like a twenty something year mm-hmm. old show. It was just no pressure. And yes. I, you know, I, I'm a big Twin Peaks fan. It's yeah. my favorite, favorite show. And so many people are like, how have you love? how do you love Twin Peaks so much and you've never seen The X-Files? It's really surprising. It's super- well, just being a horror fan yes. and that you haven't seen it. Oh, absolutely. And being like, like everyone's like, how do you not love Scully? You know, she's such this like, you know, <laughs> incredible strong female protagonist that's like, like an icon in TV. Yeah. And I'd never seen it. And my partner is a big X-Files fan. So he was like, you know what? Let's just do it. And right now we're midway through season eight, which is very unfortunate. But up until that point, up until about the fifth, fifth season when things start to go off the rails, right. I love it so much. I love Scully so much, even though there's parts of it that are very dated and mm-hmm. I wish she didn't have to run in heels all the time. But yeah. I, I definitely recommend it if you're if people are in a spot where they're like, you know, I really just need to disconnect, like watch something but kind of disconnect from people. Watch an old show. Yes. I've been hearing it a lot. on the, I always end the podcast by asking what people are watching. And lately it's been a lot of rewatching. It really is uh, comforting. People were just mentioning The Wire. What was the other one that she mentioned in that last one? I don't remember. Oh, 30 Rock she's rewatching. Oh, just yeah, stuff that is comfort food or yes. that is like people watching it to – see how it works, right? Yeah. To take it apart and put it back together. Which is really, really nice. And as a horror fan and a writer, mm-hmm. watching X-Files is great because you have this, you know, there's a mix of Monster of the Week and this, like, overarching uh, mythology mm-hmm. that sometimes is terrible and sometimes is great. And there's all this great character work. So it's really wonder. Like, for a while, that's what we would do. I would work all day. Me and my partner would work. And then at night, we would just put on X-Files every single... That's how we got... Through. We, you yeah. know, we're going through eight seasons. And these are, <laughs> you know, seasons that are 20-something. It's really amazing in our current uh, TV yeah. climate where we're used to sit now. It's all six, ten episodes at a time. So back then, having a 20... Like, people had 20-something episodes. Yeah, 22 like, to 24, like... It's a lot. It's so much. And there's much. some there are duds in there. Oh, but yeah. It's so weak to eat. I don't know. It is fascinating watching those. Yeah, it's really, really fun to see what works and what doesn't. Yeah. And yeah. it's real but it's also at the same time just great to turn your brain off because at the end of the day, you're fighting off aliens. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it's really comforting. I really, really enjoyed it. Um I and you know, Scully was such an important female character because mm-hmm. she's like, you know, she's the original badass lady. So, well, not the original, but in TV, you know, she changed so many things. Yeah. So it's great to actually because I've seen the Scully effect in the world, totally. but I hadn't seen her. That's funny, and I love her. I just adore her so much now. Now I'm yeah. like Scully is like my patron saint. <laughs> well, it's an interesting thing. I mean, you mentioned seeing the effect. I feel like we're getting that with now with Buffy. Oh, yeah. Where, like, we're seeing the effect uh, that that show and that character had on TV, but yes. it's these various versions, good or bad, yes. that sort of grew out of that. Well, I think it's also a lot of people who grew up watching that are now Absolutely. making things. Yeah, yeah. And male and female, they're like, they grew up with this, like, badass vampire slayer. Right. And they're like, I want to make stuff like that. And so it's really cool to see, like, like over like looking back in the past 30 years of tv how these how important this stuff is yeah. and how getting to see stuff like that really has an effect on both the art that's made in people's lives yeah and so much of it is coming from genre too which yes. i think is really interesting which is so it's 
I mean, you know this very, very well, and I'm sure a lot of your listeners will. Is there's the genre ghetto where people think that you're not a serious writer mm -hmm. if you're doing comics or you're doing sci-fi or you're doing fantasy, but it's always the most important stories that we get, and they're the ones that stick with people, yeah. and they're the ones that change people's lives. Absolutely. Um, to that end, uh, your favorite classic horror. What's funny? Your favorite and things you would recommend to people who don't have a good idea about it. I'm not going to say creature, <laughs> which That's is fine. very shocking to people. But my heart does belong to the Wolfman, the original 1941. <laughs> I am a, a werewolf fiend. That's a good one. And I love the original Wolfman so, so much uh, just because it's so – I think what a lot of werewolf – movies don't do is they don't show the real emotional angst and anguish behind being a werewolf. The whole uh, legend of a werewolf is all about the dual personality. It's Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Mm -hmm. Hyde stuff. And that is very, very harrowing for someone emotionally. And it's easy to make a cool, badass werewolf movie where people are biting heads right. off, bam, bam, bam. But the for me, the real magic is that struggle and I think that Lon Chaney Jr. really he, mm -hmm. he didn't do a lot of other great stuff <laughs> but he was really great at being the Wolfman and that yeah. movie is so I mean it, it's very dated Forties. It's very dated. Very, very. But it's, it's not as boring as the Mummy, though. <laughs> no. Oh my gosh. Even though I do love the Mummy because I love the main character, uh, the woman, the uh, heroine in the Mummy. I yes. think is my favorite. She's great, and the Mummy looks great. Yes. But. Very I, I, I think the Wolfman is really rewatchable. Yeah, it totally holds up. It's super fun. Uh, because of his performance in a lot of ways. Yes. But if you are looking for fun monster stuff mm -hmm. and you don't want – like uh, people who are like, hey, I don't like the Universal Monsters. Mm -hmm. I get it. Some of It's dry. Totally. It's dated. You don't – It's it, the pacing of movies in the 40s, which were slower paced. Yeah. Like it was novel to watch someone walk across a room. Yeah. Like, wow, look at them go. Amazing. <laughs> right. Now we're so used to so much stimulation. Yeah. So I always recommend uh, a movie, a Danish movie that is on Netflix right now. It's called When Animals Dream. Yes. And it is like the feminist werewolf movie of my dreams <laughs> it is it's just so wonderful it's very quick it's very fast paced mm -hmm. the werewolf looks great um and I, it's so, nuts it's so <laughs> good it's really good i was surprised i didn't hear about it more at the time it came out yeah i was shocked because i only i didn't find out about it right when it came out mm -hmm. normally it's like oh werewolf movies come out i can feel it somewhere in the world because <laughs> i'm the werewolf person but I, it completely went under the radar yeah. for me and it was like a maybe six months after it came out a friend of mine was like hey have you ever seen this and i was like what and it's really it's of a high quality like yeah. top to bottom oh it's beautiful yeah. and it's i mean it's like an hour and 20 minutes it's yeah. so watchable so if you are interested in, in monsters but you're like eh, older stuff not for me definitely check out when animals dream that's a good one is there stuff that you have seen recently uh horror stuff you've seen recently that you have loved not necessarily to recommend but that you have loved i just watched the horror noir documentary so on good. shutter which is a documentary of a history of black people in horror movies and black filmmakers in the horror genre and it is incredible yeah. you know i i feel like you know and I was one of those people. It's a, it's a movie. You want, it's a it's a documentary you want to watch because it's a very important subject. So even if it wasn't a great documentary, you should mm -hmm. watch it. But I was watching it. And I was like, oh my god, this is amazing! It is so well well done, so yeah. well edited. It is paced perfectly. You just and yeah, yes. Every in every interview, everything they talk about is riveting. So mm -hmm. you're just like, this is the most engaging, compelling documentary i've seen in a really really long time and it's on shutter right now which mm -hmm. is just uh, amc's horror only streaming service and it is so worth watching and i cannot stop talking about it it's so so fantastic has it sent you back to watch any of those movies yes actually yeah I really, me too I, which ones did you watch i really want to watch the craft Mm -hmm. um, I really want to watch uh, Eve's Bayou. There was a lot of like oh, yeah, I've never like, seen Eve's Bayou. It was like a lot of like female centric stuff mm -hmm. that gets sort of put, pushed under the rug. Not that the craft gets pushed under right. the rug, uh, but could be reconsidered now, especially yeah, especially now that it's getting remade. Is it really? Yeah, they're making, remaking the craft. They're remaking, remaking everything. That's, Honestly, that's fair. we're at the point now. Where Go you for can, it. You could tell me literally anything. <laughs> you could be like, oh, they're remaking Mr. Ed, and I'd be like, oh yeah, of course Why they wouldn't are. You? Giant CGI horse. It's going to be fine. <laughs> But uh, so they're just remaking all the things, but it's really interesting to go back and see because, you know, 
when you watch the craft or when I watch stuff, I watch it as a white chick. Right. So watching that stuff, but through, that's what's amazing is watching this documentary and seeing all these movies through the lens of a black viewer mm-hmm. is you're like, wow, holy shit, this is something I've never thought about. And it's like looking at movies like The Craft from like the point of view of a black woman watching it or a black woman in it. Mm-hmm. Like it's just, ugh, it's so good. And it's really funny. It's just like, <laughs> ugh. I it's will, a great documentary. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. I uh, recommend it. And, and we, I have said this on Twitter, but I recommend Shudder to any yes. horror fan. It's just really well curated. Oh, it's fantastic. I think that's one of the best things about Shudder is that when you go in the uh, the sections, it's not just like, yeah. here's horror movies, here's documentaries. It's like, here's all the haunted house movies. Yes. Here's all the zombie movies. It's like what horror fans want. Yeah. How horror fans <laughs> recommend movies to absolutely. each other. That's how it's curated. It, like, I if was you can say, away. I don't want to look at the list of uh, people eating people. Then you don't have to look at that list. No. You get crazy. You get, like, and it gets so specific, like crazy clowns, yes. like like crazy psychos, lovers, ghosts, like yeah. everything you could ever want. It's so fantastic. Very good. Uh, well, this book is great. Um, I watch a documentary based on the book. Do that. Uh, the Lady from the Black Lagoon is uh, available today. Mallory, thank you for being here. Thank you so much, Ben. I had so much fun. Good. Forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram, at Forever Dog Team, and liking our page on Facebook.